You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hello and welcome to Belaboured number 78. I'm Michelle and I'll be your host for this podcast. Sarah is on book leave and she'll be back for the next podcast. So today we've got a special for you. It's another Belaboured live event. It's a recording of a dissent discussion panel on graduate student organizing and the potential to create a new academic labor movement on college campuses. But first, a little news. Los Angeles became the second major city to reach the magic $15 number in its latest minimum wage hike, which was overwhelmingly approved by the city council last week. The new hourly wage will be phased in over the next five years. It's expected to affect about 800,000 people across the city. And according to one research analysis by the Economic Roundtable, $15 an hour by 2020 will generate about 46,000 new jobs for the city while pumping more than $400 million into local tax coffers. Not bad. Um, But it's bigger news because it means a lot for the Fight for 15 nationwide. It marks not only another victory after Seattle last year, but it could spur similar action here in New York, where a campaign for $15 an hour is heating up as Governor Cuomo launches a special wage board that will allow him to lift the wage for fast food workers specifically, and he can do that without going through the legislature, which is a good thing because our legislature is completely paralyzed by the panoply of corrupt New York organizations, though it's not at all clear that Cuomo will actually raise the wage. Uh, nonetheless, you know they're not only pushing for that on the state level, but they're also pushing a minimum wage that's specific to New York City, uh, which would require a separate legislative measure that would allow the, uh, New York to set its own minimum wage level. And beyond the actual setting of the wage floor, there's a bigger problem looming on the horizon, which is getting bosses to actually pay that minimum wage. And in my latest piece for The Nation, I talk about some of the challenges related to enforcement. Uh, Currently, there's um, another push uh, going on before the city council to beef up uh, the wage enforcement system because low-wage workers are estimated to lose about 12 to 13 percent of their income to wage theft every year and they have little recourse against their bosses. In fact, a study shows that in recent years, less than a fifth of workers who won their wage theft case against their employer ever collected any of that money. So there'll be a new battle on the horizon for a major expansion of staff and funding for enforcement, including more labor investigators and meaningful penalties on employers who evade wage laws. Until then, it's going to be an uphill battle for Angelinos who, even on the higher minimum wage, will be struggling to make ends meet. In fact, if you crunch the data for uh, rental housing in the city, there's actually no place that's really affordable on a $15 minimum wage in all of Los Angeles. Moving right along to global inequality. This week's most unsurprising news is that global inequality is on the rise. According to a new report by the OECD, the yawning gap between economically advanced countries by income as well as by household wealth continues to yawn. That means that the bottom 40% uh, in these countries that have been surveyed own only about 3% of total household wealth. By contrast, about 10% of the population controls half of all total household wealth, and the wealthiest 1% owns about 18%. So basically, this profound inequality, as you probably know, leads to greater social inequity. 
Uh, and the researchers found that the more polarized an economy is, the more it holds back potential growth. So that the rise in inequality between 1985 and 2005 in the 19 OECD countries analyzed is estimated to have knocked about five percentage points off of cumulative growth. So, so much for all boats rise. And of course, those who pay for that rising inequality is uh, the cost falls disproportionately on the poor. The OECD also reports that as inequality rises, families with lower socioeconomic background experience significant falls in educational attainment and skills. And that means large amounts of wasted potential and lower social mobility. So obviously, capitalism is not the most efficient way to allocate resources. Um, the U.S., not surprisingly, again, is at the top of the list, along with some people that might surprise you, uh, Chile, Mexico, and Turkey. Uh, among the lowest in inequality are Denmark, uh, Slovenia, the Slovak Republic, and Norway. Though women generally still earn less than men do, uh, the increase in the number of women working, according to the researchers, actually has uh, the effect of offsetting inequality. In fact, without the growth in the proportion of households with working women, if it had stayed level uh, over the past 20 to 25 years, income inequality would have increased even more significantly. There's also the issue of precarity. More than half of the new jobs that have been created since 1995 have involved part-time or temporary contracts or self-employment. So that means that people are employed precariously in the informal sector, don't have stable wages or benefits, and youth are especially likely to be stuck in that bracket, unfortunately, and that, of course, compounds their grim prospects moving into the future. They're less likely to land a permanent job later on. So let's call it the new normal. So speaking of young people living unstable economic lives, we're going to talk to some of those people right now with a special recording of a live belabored event uh, hosted by Descent Magazine featuring a panel of graduate worker organizers. The conversation took place last month on the heels of an unprecedented wave of labor organizing among graduate students. You might have noticed there's been an uptick in union activity, especially on Northeast campuses. Uh, so far, only NYU, as a private university, has a campus union for its graduate student workers. But more and more schools like Columbia, Yale, and the New School have been trying to uh, organize their graduate fellows and research assistants to demand uh, contracts, uh, union vote, and to challenge a long-standing precedent at the National Labor Relations Board, which says that uh, universities, private universities in particular, do not have to treat their graduate students as workers. So pushing back against that is uh, the uh, once stable graduate fellow uh, workforce who find themselves in increasingly dire economic straits. Um, and on several private college campuses, they are not only exploited as, um, you know, part of the faculty workforce, part of the lower tier faculty workforce, but they're also denied benefits. Um, there's no real sort of uh, collective bargaining. So we're going to talk about some of those issues um, in this event. And we're going to hear from Rebecca Wind of NYU, Andrea Crow and Lindsay Dayton at Columbia, Tina Groger of Harvard, Ellie Nadu of the New School for Social Research, and Kelly Goodman of Yale. We are here to talk about graduate student labor and 
the work that they do, which is often varied, ranging from teaching undergrads to producing research to uh, helping run academic programs and shape curricula, um, to serving as kind of all-purpose assistants to faculty and administrators. And uh, their toil is often uh, not recognized as real labor, and it's often, um, uh, the perception of it often gets distorted because of various preconceived notions we have about what it means to uh, work in the academic field. Um, and in December of 2013, graduate student workers at New York University uh, voted uh, to form a formal union affiliated with United Auto Workers. Um, and four months later, um, <clears throat> graduate students at Yale issued a petition uh, demonstrating majority um, favor for a union. And uh, we've also seen graduate student worker movements erupt uh, at the New School, at Harvard, um, and at Columbia. And there have been some victories. For instance, uh, GSOC um, at uh, NYU recently uh, just sealed the deal on its first uh, contract uh, with NYU. Um, and uh, Yale students have also been making uh, collective bargaining gains in terms of their demands on the administration. Um, but there are major challenges ahead just to getting their uh, organizations recognized as, as formal unions. So uh, I guess right now we should just uh, uh, leave it to our speakers and uh, we're going to start with talking about where do we go from here, um, what is graduate student organizing going to look like as we move forward, and how do we build on the gains as well as the lessons learned from the uh, organizing campaigns that we've seen cropping up in the last few years. So I'm just going to introduce here, uh, I guess roughly in uh, chronological order. Uh, so I guess uh, well, uh, Ella Wind is a, a graduate student in Middle East Studies, and Lily DeFriend is an anthropology um, student at uh, uh, New York University with uh, GSOC, and uh, Kelly Goodman is with uh, GSO at Yale. Um, Andrea Crow and Lindsay Dayton are representing Columbia University in history, in English and history, respectively. Is that right? Okay. Um, with the <laughs> GWC over there, um, Eli Nadu is uh, with the New School, <clears throat> and uh, Tina Tina Groger is uh, at Harvard University in history, which with the um, Harvard Graduate Student Union. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, all right, so uh, I guess in that order, um, maybe we can start by just briefly introducing yourselves and talking a little bit about the state of the campaigns at your respective institutions. Yeah. Um, so hi, I'm, my name is Ella Wind. I'm a second year student in Middle East Studies at NYU, and next year I'll be a sociology PhD student at NYU. And mm -hmm. I was on the bargaining committee with GSOC UAW. Um, and I'm also a member of our Unions Reform Caucus, Academic Workers for a Democratic Union. So first I want to talk about some of the highlights of our contract. Um, something that is kind of unique about NYU's situation in bargaining is that we have had a very diverse, we had and still have a very diverse unit um, in terms of working condition and compensation. So some of our PhD students re were receiving a relatively higher wage and benefits, while many other PhD students had virtually no benefits and were earning very little money, and also master students, um, some working for basically minimum wage. Um, so what we really negotiated at NYU was a kind of social justice contract where we sought to earn the biggest gains for those at the bottom um, who had the least, while still getting gains 4% um, in the first year raises for the PhD students that were earning um, a relatively higher wage in the first place. 
Um, we focus, our, for example, our engineering students that have been earning $10 or $11 an hour will be getting $15 an hour in the first year of the contract and $20 an hour by the end of the contract. Uh, we got 90% healthcare coverage for workers that previously had none. And we also fought really hard for benefits for young families. Um, we got a child care fund and a health, family health care fund, which we saw as really crucial to addressing issues of inequality, gender inequality in academia. Um, but what I primarily want to focus on is how we won and the kind of stra strategy we used. And I want to talk about three key points, I think, that were really essential and unique to the NYU strategy. Uh, first, we used a very multi-layered and flexible mobilization strategy. Second, we drew inspiration from the creativity of other movements like Occupy Wall Street. And lastly, we really took seriously the notion of the whole university as a site of struggle. So uh, first about our kind of what I mean by a multi-layered strategy. Our campaign last spring with the UAW began with a strategy prioritizing very much one-on-one -on -one discussions and petitions for building up our base and beginning to put pressure on the administration. But after one semester and a summer of bargaining using these tactics, many of the core organizers and the membership began to feel that we needed to use a wider range of tools to escalate our contract campaign and pressure the administration more effectively. So last fall, the Reform Caucus that I'm a part of, Academic Workers for a Democratic Union, won union elections to fill four new seats that had opened up on the bargaining committee. And we embarked on a campaign which involved more collective direct actions and more direct membership engagement in the process of bargaining. We worked to re-energize a base which had become kind of demobilized and disconnected from bargaining by holding several open bargaining sessions in which students brought their grievances and personal stories of struggles under working conditions at NYU directly to the administration. And at every open bargaining session we held, um, we saw a growing number of grad students attending. After that, after we had kind of built up this base, we started to plan public actions, which had even more participants, and earnest coverage in several local and national news publications. And planning these actions continued to build us a bigger organizing base and a better uh, trained organizing base, as it created these new opportunities for people to jump in and be really involved in a variety of ways that fit their interests and how they felt that they could contribute to the union. So the night that we were on a verge of the strike, uh, with NYU, which is the night that we got the contract, we had this nimble, reliable, and very experienced group of organizers that could really present a credible strike threat to the university. Um, a second principle we focused on was drawing on the sort of creativity and even fun that many of the core organizers had been a part of with Occupy Wall Street. So our protests weren't just picket lines with signs. We invited a marching band. We broke open a pinata symbolizing NYU's endowment. And we brought big red balloons saying NYU can afford a fair contract. So, and organizing these collective direct actions that were winning creative wasn't just a kind of superficial glean on our organizing. It was really an important and essential component. So on the side of our endowment pinata, which was a form of a big purple piggy bank, we wrote $399 million which was NYU's income over expensive expenses in the previous year. And that image got um, in a ton of newspapers, that $399 million, and everyone was saying that number afterwards. And all of the newspaper articles that came out about it used mentioned the $399 million income over expenses in like the first two paragraphs of any single article. Um, so we, we saw that these one-on-one -on -one discussions alone couldn't build the sense of kind of collective trust and solidarity the way standing in, your, in the snow and chanting with your colleagues for a fair contract can, and that petitions alone don't attract media coverage enough that is needed to pressure the university to come to the table with a fair contract. 
And lastly, we really took seriously the notion of the university as a site of struggle. Um, we looked outside of our own ranks and we built cross-campus and cross-city alliances, first with sympathetic student groups like Students for Justice in Palestine, Student Labor Action Movement, and NYU Divest. And undergrads from these groups, along with unions from around the NYU campus and around the city, attended our bargaining sessions and then our rallies and began to spread the word more broadly among the student body about our contract campaign. Uh, we also created a guide for talking to mem faculty members about uh, our potential strike. So a few days before the strike, the provost sent out a campus-wide email trying to discredit GSOC and our contract campaign. And the undergrads that we had been reaching out to immediately self-organized protested at his office within a few hours, dozens of undergrads self-organizing. Um, they responded to, many, many people responded to the email CCing us, and they circulated a petition that had 500 signatures before our last bargaining session. So on the evening, and dozens of them showed up, undergrads and graduate students, on the evening before our strike deadline, holding signs that said GSOC on strike. And, uh, you know, when NYU came to the table that night, they had a, they put down a contract which was still missing a lot of key components, and those undergrads and those graduate students were staying until 2 in the morning until we got a contract that we felt that we could be proud of. And I really think that it was kind of essential for putting that last-minute pressure, showing that people were really ready to go on strike and that we were really able to. And we had people that were very uh, – that were, would be out uh, at the picket line the very next day um, if we did go on strike. So uh, I really think the GSOC UAW story is one that shows that flexibility, creativity, and most of all, a mobilized and engaged membership is key to graduate student unions winning contracts. Okay. Hi, I'm Kelly Goodman. I'm a second year in the history <coughs> program at Yale. And I organize because I am very clear that the only reason I am in graduate school and managing chronic illness is because of the quality health care that previous generations of graduate students fought for and won. And I know that other students, my colleagues in the history department and across the university, have fights of their own over child care, over mental health care, that they need us to win on too in order to do the work that they came to graduate school to do. One of the most powerful things that I have learned and experienced as I have organized at Yale has been that my liberation is tied up with the liberation of everyone in New Haven. So I want to tell you a little bit about our campaign. Over the last year, Yale graduate employees have twice submitted majority petitions calling on the university to recognize our graduate student union, Unite Here GSO, the Graduate Employees and Students Organization. Last April, hundreds of graduate employees marched in the rain carrying a petition to the president's office. In October, thousands of graduate students and our allies rallied in the streets under the banner of a photo petition. More than a thousand graduate students took their photo with a New Haven community member, Yale worker, or Connecticut politician. This is my photo. I took it with a vice president of the Clerical and Technical Workers Union. He's also a graduate registrar in the economics department. We stretched these photos 520 feet long, an entire city block, and the governor of Connecticut hosted our rally. While the Yale administration has not responded formally to our petitions, they did grant a long-term demand of ours guaranteed six-year funding without a pay cut. We're the only graduate 
employees in the country I know of with such a funding package. However, the six-year funding does not cover scientists or fellowship winners, and the university is trying to pay for it by cutting seventh year and other upper year teaching. For me, the clear lesson is the bargaining we do in the streets is different than the bargaining we want to do in the boardroom. We are not waiting for Yale to recognize us to begin acting like the union we are. We released a report on the effects of Yale College's expansion on teaching. They're trying to offset the burden of educating 800 new undergraduates coming in the fall of 2017 to graduate students, to undergraduate peer mentors, and to non-ladder faculty. We also delivered a grievance about insecure upper year funding and are planning others. We make all of this action possible through organizing and coalition building. Committees of graduate students talk to their colleagues in every department. And we build deep cross-class, cross-race relationships and alliances with our allies across the city and the campus. Uh, so I'm Lindsay. I'm in the history department at Columbia. And, and I'm Andrea. I'm in the English department at Columbia also. Um, and our campaign has been going on. Um, you know, we, there was an earlier campaign at Columbia um, around the time that Yale and NYU were organizing. Um, but it wasn't a continuous campaign. So our, the camp, the, this campaign has been going on since last January. Um, and it started with a lot of conversations that were happening across campus in many different departments. Um, but how it sort of became an, a union campaign instead of just a sort of informal complaining process or sort of departmental level organizing um, was really through the support of the UAW. So um, the president of Local 2110 of the UAW who you know represents a lot of the clerical workers on campus at Columbia and at Barnard um, is basically always there. I had known her from being involved in other um, sort of solidaristic labor organizing with different workers on campus, and and so when NYU got voluntary recognition, we sort of got our act together and went to the UAW and talked to them about developing a campaign. Um, and it started sort of by mapping all of our networks across campus, the people that we knew in different departments. And then we started talking to people um, in departments where we didn't really have contacts. Yeah, um, and I would say, like, I guess if I was going to characterize our campaign, I would say, like, unglamorous but satisfying. <laughs> um, so, like, the work for the most part was, I mean, our meetings were working meetings, you know, so you'd come basically to talk about, like, what departments haven't we talked to yet, and how are we going to, like, direct people there? Like, what will, like, move people there? Um, and we spent, like, the entire summer just uh, making sure that we had a contact in every department, um, which we did by July, sort of, like, spreading out as wide of a net as possible once we tapped out our own social networks. And then in the fall, we started our... Um, oh, well, and part of this, too, was, like, information gathering. So, like, I'm in the English department... And I know what, like, people in English were concerned about, but I had no idea what, like, people in chemical engineering were concerned about. So as we were starting to, like, shape what our, like, main issues would be um, in our campaign and, like, even how we understood ourselves as workers, we wanted to get, like, as much information about what work people do as possible. 
Um, so yeah, like I said, by like midsummer, we had contacts in every department, and then you know, kind of started the work of like activating those um, le- departmental leaders to reach out to people in their department. Yeah, and so the process of organizing this year has been talking to every single grad student who's working on campus. Um, we've included both RAs and TAs. We've included undergraduate TAs. We've included MA students who are working, including in the professional schools, where they do all sorts of different kinds of work. Um, and I think for all of us involved in the organizing, it's been a process of, of learning and sort of listening. reason why our campaign focuses on that one-on-one organizing is because we don't, you know, as Andrea said, like we don't know what's going on in every department until we have those conversations, but it also moves all of us forward. Um, and so, it, you know, we sort of started by focusing out on the, the cards to get union recognition because we don't believe that Columbia will give us voluntary recognition. We believe that they have enough money to fight this till the death. Um, and so we want to go after the, the Brown precedent and overturn this, this labor precedent that says that grad students are not workers. Um, and so doing the card campaign was necessary to, to sort of get that, those legal ducks in a row. Um, but what's come out of the one-on-one organizing we've been doing is more issue-based campaigning, that we're, which is where we're seeing real gains. So like Yale... Although we don't have the, the university's recognition, we have their fear on our side. And um, most recently, uh, international students started organizing. Um, you know, they, they have a sort of separate meeting every week, and they won um, 15 grants of $2,500 each for summer funding. So these are additional summer funding opportunities for students who are unable to apply to many of the major grants that people get to do some of their initial research when they come to grad school because they're not U.S. citizens. Um, And so, you know, that came out of three weeks of organizing. Um, So we're seeing the university start to move on some of these demands that we have. Um, And and I think we're all learning from each other about what, what these different experiences are on campus. Yeah, it's kind of been shocking seeing how fast, like, Columbia's been moving on things. Um, And it's because we have this, like, strong majority support and we're organized. So, like, you know, if we need a petition circulated or we need to turn people out to something, we can do it, like, pretty quickly. Um, I think, I don't know, I'd add to what you said. Um, Like you said, we we had our card drive. It was a lot of work, um, but it actually happened pretty quickly. We got, like, over 1,700 workers signed. We approached the administration at that point. but obviously didn't have much faith that we would get um, too much of a response. We're now in the middle of the NLRB hearings. Um, and in the meantime, we've just been kind of seeing like things change on campus, which is really exciting. I think that's been the biggest change for me, actually, has been moving from feeling like I was in a university where everything was so hyper-isolated. Um, you know, I knew people in English and maybe in French or whatever, but now like everyone's connected to each other, um, which is nice in such a small contained campus. Like, it's no longer an anonymous, small-contained campus. Um, and so people are helping each other out, like in addition to the international students' work that Lindsay's talking about where, you know, they just got all these grants created. Um, there's also been, we've been working with the Graduate Student Council that was already in place on campus and, like, um, with our Quality of Life Committee and, like, together um, we got the administration to extend uh, ch- uh, parental leave for um, parents. We got them to double child care support, which is still like pitifully low, um, but it's doubled what it was before. 
Um, and we kind of have been like sort of putting an informal like grievance procedure in place where if someone's getting like mistreated by their department, they know they can like come talk to the union, you know, so yeah. Yeah, I think it really is about thinking about Columbia not as a space that belongs to the administration, but as a space that belongs to, you know, those who are carrying out its mission, its main missions of, of education and research. So that's, you know, the people who are working on campus to make that possible, including graduate workers, but it's also the undergraduates, the faculty members, it's the adjuncts, um, and it really does feel like Columbia belongs to us now, um, and that we're organizing from that place instead of this place of feeling powerless. Yeah. So, hey everyone, I'm Eli, I'm from the New School, I'm in the politics department, an MA student there, um, and I just want to thank Descent for hosting this. Thank you, Natasha and Michelle, for putting this together and moderating it. And thank you to my amazing comrades who are sitting on this panel. Um, so the new school's union organizing would not have been possible without the models that were given to us. And we've been really encouraged and galvanized by, um, especially NYU. Um, we've just really benefited from the um, from the knowledge and attention that we've um, received from them um, as support. Um, so basically at the new school we've been organizing um, as grad student employees since at least 2012. Um, the momentum really got kicked up last fall after NYU's um, success. We were pretty inspired by that. Um, the UAW took us on sort of as uh, stepchildren, and we pulled off a quick and effective car drive doing similar things to what have been mentioned. Um, our economics department sort of radically led the charge, and they were um, ironically right. I'm in the politics no department, ever. and like, right, exactly. Very few politics organizers, lots of econ, whatever, it's the new school, right? Um, so we managed to get. Um, more than 70% support. Um, it was kind of great. So we delivered our petition to the administration on December 10th and went public to the um, university community. And on the 17th, we delivered our petition to the NLRB with Columbia. Um, some of you were there. It was yeah. super fun. And <laughs> so we're super proud, right? We've got our like recipe box of, of <laughs> car signed cards, and we're just like seventy percent, three hundred and fifty signatures. We rock, and we're so and and so we put that down. And Columbia comes along, and they've got like these file boxes, right? And they're like clunk, okay, clunk, clunk. and and it was just like oh. Right, that's what that looks like. Um, so amazing, though, to be part of this bigger movement. And um, we had a little confab of, of organizers after this all happened in January when there was a bit of a break. And just hearing what people are doing um, across the universities, hearing about Yale's incredible just filling the streets in their photo campaign, um, just really amazing. And also, so I just want to also say, um, SENS UAW, the student employees of the new school UAW, stands with the Fight for 15 um, for minimum wage workers. They deserve a union too. So um, congratulations to all of them and all of us and all of you who went out into the street for that. Um, let's keep doing it. Um, so the new school is a private school. Very few students get fully funded. Um, actually, 
I think like five students in each department get fully funded. Um, only a handful get both tuition coverage and a stipend across the university. Um, so we also are sort of broken up. We have Parsons, uh, the school for design, which includes the fashion school, Project Runway. Um, let's organize the runway. Um, actually, they're, they're pretty well organized. And NSSR is, is our sort of like uh, flagship school, but it's also the one that's costing us the most money. Um, so that's, that's an interesting dynamic. There's Manus, uh, the school for music. There's a school for drama, school for jazz. Um, the new school for public engagement. Not really sure what that means, but they're active. Um, Milano, the school. Um, of, uh, what is Milano? They're red. Um, and <laughs> so That's all of our, thank you, yeah. public policy. I was like, I already said engagement. No, it's policy, which is super important. Um, but <laughs> so our organizers come from all of these different schools and, but um, the sort of awareness of how they all fit together, this is actually something that we think the university administration is trying to address too. So we're encouraging them, look, you know, we'll help you along with that union, we can unite, it can be amazing. Um, and, and actually the organizing structure of our meetings does sort of um, model such an engagement, which we're hoping to continue and expand on. Um, okay, so we're historically low on the endowment end, but the strength um, of the reputation is one of progressive politics. So the radical impulse, um, sorry, I'm a writer, so I have to like read my cherished sentences. The radical impulse burns strong among many students, faculty, and staff within the community, whatever. It totally <laughs> does. Um, however, it's often challenged by institutional inclinations of a more corporate and capitalist nature. So this is for real, though. They just rebranded the new school, as you may have noticed. I kind of thought it was hideous. Some people really love it. Some people are glad the spray paint logo is done. Um, it'll cost them a lot of money to replace all those business cards and all of the logos that are splattered all over everything. So regardless of whether or not we needed a new brand, like it's a pretty expensive endeavor. They claim, we had a ton hole last week, they claim that they didn't do this with tuition money, but they're raising tuition not for that, not for the new building, which costs like $353 million. Thank you. Um, so anyway, it's, it's a problem, and we're calling them on it, and we think that actually they're going to... Um, we think that they're going to recognize the union. And um, so part of the reason for this is because on, May, on April 20th, which is Monday, our hearings are going to start at the NLRB. And um, we don't think that they want to spend money on the lawyers. And we hope they don't. It would be a terrible <laughs> idea in case anyone's listening. Um, and, but honestly, like, we're, we're really anticipating some movement. Um, and, you know, if they don't move, we have models for how to fight an administration. And, you know, we're kind of ragged in the tooth and pretty fierce. So we will um, make sure that, that they know that we're not going anywhere. Um, so is there anything else? Collective bargaining. We just want to get to the table. We want to win livable wages, affordable health care benefits for caregivers and partners, as have been said, um, and consistent working expectations. It would be really mm -hmm. nice to know like, what the jobs are that we can expect to get and hold. Um, so that's the usual. Um, that's all. Thanks. Great. Well, um, I'm Tina. I'm, I'm a fourth-year grad student in the history department at Harvard. Um, and yeah, thank you um, for, every, for Descent for organizing this and um, kind of exactly what Eli said. Um, Harvard has taken a lot of inspiration from all of the campaigns and strategies. Um, and I don't think we'd be where we are now, which is 
I think two weeks ago, kind of officially now a union or a public union, um, or not a recognized one, but, pu but a public campaign, um, which is exciting. Um, so I want to talk a little bit just about um, sort of prior, I mean, prior to our kind of officially going public, there had been um, efforts to, uh, yeah, work on issues that affect graduate student working conditions. And one of the biggest ones um, kind of got me involved originally, um, which also was started by a group of grad students in especially uh, departments where teaching is linked to funding. Um, was, it's called the Harvard Teaching Campaign, but basically the, it's an issue, it was an issue campaign um, with the goal of capping section size, sections and uh, lab groups at 12 students. So since the financial crisis, um, they had been, I mean, there was officially no target number. Um, they had been like 15, and then they started increasing them to 18, 20, 25. Um, and you know, for grad students, teaching 12 students, teaching two sections of 12 is very different from teaching two sections of, of 25 students. So um, this really motivated a lot of grad students to work on it. And um, it also was a great issue um, that had a, bro a broad base of support you know, around the university. So faculty, I mean, I don't know how many faculty I talked to that were just like, yeah, this is a no-brainer. Like, who could be opposed to this? Like, who, you know, who would do that? Um, and students, of course, I mean, we kind of build it as like, this is about undergraduate education, and this is about TFs being able to, or TAs doing, being able to do their jobs well and effectively and devote time to each and every one of their students. Um, so it, it, we um, tried to really focus on building a broad coalition. Um, started with a petition. Um, which I'll get, I'll get back to that. But in the meantime, um, in really this, this fall, um, we got 15 academic departments to sign on or to endorse the campaign. Um, the Undergraduate Council, which is their student government, Grad Student Council. Um, and yeah, next Tuesday at noon, April 21st, we will be delivering um, what will be 2,000 um, petition signatures from faculty, grad students, undergrads, parents, alumni. Um, to the administrators, um, and yeah, you're all welcome to come. It should be really fun and exciting, um, and having this sort of date has been really helpful in galvanizing the union, too, to have something to, to kind of work on. Um, that said, teaching is not everything, and I, again, I think you know, the, the union really started with a strong base of support in the teaching of humanities and social sciences, but um, there are a lot of issues that now the union really wants to focus on and kind of similarly we're um, you know we're organizing across um, the arts and sciences at least for now um, but uh, we really want to see you know what are the issues that all grad students um, are concerned with and for, for sciences a lot of it is kind of working conditions in labs um, I mean I think a lot of the same issues healthcare dental um, parental leave child care um, these are all the same issues that grad students um, have in common um, but the other, I think, big, you know, the, the message and kind of the, the main focus of the, or the principle behind a lot of the organizing that we're doing is that this is really just about having a say in the university and having some control over our own working and living conditions. Um, and an issue of, um, of priorities, and this is, kind of gets to, like, how does this fit into the broader kind of situation of higher education, but, you know, rather than spend money rebranding or rather than spend money on dorm renovations and MOOCs, you know, why not put it where um, to actually, right, fulfill the mission of the university, put it or give it to people that 
are actually doing the work in the university. Um, so, right, so um, we're trying to build common ground with um, other sectors of the university, with other Harvard unions um, that are represented by a lot of different local unions. So we're, I mean, at this stage we're not affiliated, but we're starting to have conversations kind of really broadly. Um, and uh, there has been no official administrative response yet, um, so we'll see. But um, the Crimson, which is the undergraduate newspaper, um, has so far been awesome, and they put out this editorial, or the editorial staff put out kind of an endorsement of graduate student organizing, which has not always been the stance of the undergraduate newspaper at Harvard. Um, and uh, yeah, so so far we're, we've been getting some good publicity, um, and it's exciting. I'm optimistic, although I'm sure you know roadblocks down the road. But um, yeah, it, it's a very exciting moment right now. All right, so I guess uh, to start off with, and this can be sort of a free-form conversation and dialogue, you can feel free to rip, up, rip on this, but um, I mean, it does seem like there's, we're sort of reaching a critical mass, and I was wondering if you had any insights into uh, why now, why we've seen kind of a kind of this efflorescence of, of grad worker organizing, um, you know, what, uh, what does this signify about, you know, changing political winds, or is this kind of building off of other movements like Occupy? I mean, you know, why is all this coming to fruition now? So you can start with the, the NYU people, because you, you guys right. are kind of first. Um, so. I mean, so of course NYU's unionizing started, right, well before, I mean, a long time ago, and we had this, there's a very long history. But I definitely think that um, there's something in the air, right? And there's, and a lot of our core organizers really were um, involved in, deeply involved in Occupy Wall Street, for example, um, and these other kind of post-Occupy movements that have um, sprung up in its wake. And I, yeah, I, I do think that there's sort of, a, it's indi indicative of a kind of changing political um, dynamic in general in the U.S., which is now, um, you know, it's not only in the university, right? It's in a lot of different contexts, but I think that the, the university and especially at this point in time where we've just seen um, uh, tuition growing rapidly out of control, um, huge administrative bloat and basically waste, I think there's kind of a sense that we've reached a breaking point and that, you know, just as you said, right, there's a sense of that we want to have some say in our university and have it and try to... Um, hold their feet to the fire, you know, to um, fulfill the mission that they state that they have. Yeah. Anyone currently embroiled in the throes of an organizing, active organizing campaign wants to talk about uh, maybe something specific to your campuses or just uh, how you feel generally? And also, I guess, I mean, I, I don't have a very good sense of the geography here, but it does seem like heavy concentration in the Northeast. I don't know if that's um, but but I, I don't know, maybe there are other efforts going on across the country that I'm not aware of, so um, maybe you can reflect on what the, the regional aspect. I mean, I think part of the reason that's growing, like, this is, like, a little bit, like, basic, but, I mean, first of all, there's the fact that a lot of people are going to grad school right now because they can't pay off their student loans, and so it's like, well, let's continue putting those off for a while. So that just means there's a critical <laughs> mass of people who are very aware of their, like, whatever, economic disenfranchisement, all yes. hanging out with each other. Um, and then I think, like, the other, <laughs> the other aspect of it is we, like, a lot of us, like, really like the university and as a thing and hope to be in it for a long time and look at the job market and see, like, okay, there's this many grad students, there's this many adjunct positions, and there's this many tenure-track positions. Like, we've got to start preparing now for how we're going to, like, take on that, um, that market and take control of it, I guess. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I came to Columbia from organizing. Um, I actually, I worked in a hotel. I organized with Unite Here in Chicago and then in New York. And so when people at Columbia, I mean, basically from day one started saying, oh, we need a union. Oh, you're a union organizer. Okay, we need a grad student union. Um, looking at you, David. Uh, <laughs> and and I was thinking, like, no, I'm, I'm at in grad school now <laughs> like this is the other thing that I'm doing now right this is my labor of love um, and it was in my first year at Columbia I started getting involved with a Unite Here local that had sort of been abandoned by the union um, or at, at the yeah House? it's at Faculty House and it was a group of banquet workers it was a really small shop Unite Here really didn't care about them um, and I it was through working with them that I learned a lot about how Columbia actually thinks about the work that's being done on campus and how it thinks about workers on campus. Um, and that was a really hard fight. And there was a woman who had cancer in the shop. Um, their contract had been out for two years. Uh, basically, like the, their negotiations were going to expire, and she wasn't going to have any health care. And the woman who was running the negotiations for Columbia was just openly racist and callous in these negotiations. Um, and I think it was then that I, you know, this is before I was actually working as a TA, but it was then that I started thinking about the grad student union and how, you know, Columbia was thinking about the university as this space. And I started describing it to people like, you know, the university and these spaces of education and these sort of higher ideals are like this last frontier for capitalism. And capital just wants so desperately to get in there any way that it possibly can through MOOCs or Coke vending machines or through Sodexo cafeterias or, you know, any number of ways. Um, and it's like Columbia is still organized as a feudal system in many ways, not as a kind of capitalist system. It hasn't outsourced all of its cafeterias. It hasn't outsourced Faculty House to Sodexo. Um, but you can see it kind of coming down the line. And, and when I started working, I sort of saw that firsthand. They don't care about teaching. Um, they don't give us pedagogical training. Um, they don't do anything to make sure that we have sort of uniform work assignments. This is not an apprenticeship. You know, the labor of love, like my research, what I'm doing for my dissertation, that is the apprenticeship I have with my advisor. Teaching undergraduates is, is something that they're sort of using cheap labor for um, so that they don't have to get more fa hire more faculty members to, to teach them. Hire adjuncts who are even more expensive than we are. Um, and so I guess for me, I think... You know, it's more than just this lip service that the, there's labor being done all over the campus. It's like actually the way that they're treating the workers in the banquet halls and in the cafeterias is sort of coming for the rest of us. Um, uh, I guess I, I also wanted to talk about how you have, well, you, you've each had, I guess, uh, different, different responses from the administrations at your respective campuses, though all, all different stonewalling to different degrees and in different forms, maybe. But um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you've been able to navigate that, um, both you know, as, as a collective and, and in terms of just being strategic about what you're, the kinds of pressure that you're putting on the administration. Well, we've had, at the new school, we've had a fairly positive response from the administration. And we didn't 
take that for granted because we've had prior administrations that absolutely, you know, that called in the cops to haul off occupiers. So we, um, although we didn't know that that would be their response, we suspected that um, this would be a good time to put pressure on them. We took them by surprise. You know, the new school was not anticipating this, um, and I and I think that was part of the advantage. But. Um, they're also particularly susceptible to the ideological claims that our campaign made on them. Um, I think that they're just as the movement has sort of taken us up as student organizers, I think that the administrations across campuses are sort of um, feeling as if they might be on um, precarious footing themselves. They're not sure where the next demonstration is going to come from. And I think that that also has something to do with why now, why graduate organizers. I mean, in some ways, unions are a fairly easy target. Labor is, you know, labor justice is social justice. And so if you can get people to recognize their stake in it, then, then most of the time you can convince them um, that at least they should be paying attention to what unions are doing. Um, and so that was that was part of the benefit. But in terms of the administration themselves, um, <laughs> it it just helps that we're not a rich institution, and so they um, haven't necessarily, um, you know, come running and, and begged us not to demonstrate and, and make them look bad. But but effectively, I think that's a lot of what's going on, which oh. is working. Yeah, and you still are going through an NLRB process. Well, we're using the NLRB process. I mean, I would love to see Brown overturned, and I know that everyone in the in the union organizing at the new school is up for sticking with it through the long haul. But if they do decide to recognize us voluntarily, I think we'll probably take it. Anyone? Uh, anyone with a perhaps less less rosy story of um, butting heads at the administration? Yeah, I mean, that the official response has been this sort of um, vague paternalism, um, this sort of hidden response is that they've hired an anti-labor law firm um, and that they are, you know, having these kind of scared discussions about the potential for there being, you know, a really strong campaign on campus and, um, yeah. Is that in line with how they dealt with their other like, staff and worker unions in the, in the past? You're saying you were yeah, the unite locals. Um, they're very, they're very anti-labor. Um, and at Harvard, is it? Um, well, I mean, I guess we've gotten some responses um, from the teaching campaign, although that's kind of separate. And it's, I mean, that's also kind of an easier issue. And I think administration can sort of turn it, you know, drag their feet a little bit, maybe kind of throw us a bone. Um, I mean, what what I have learned, I mean, sort of from the recent past um, of ways that Harvard has tried to kind of take down other unions um, has been turning it into an like you're doing something that's anti-Harvard you mm -hmm. are um, you're like against the mission of the university and I think what's so powerful about you know the way that we can spin it is like no we're fundamental to the university mm -hmm. and this is not about creating kind of conflict or fear this is about like being able to do what we are here to do mm -hmm. and so I mean it sort of gets into like different strategies um, and different ways of, of thinking about sort of, sort of acad academic labor but um, I think there's room for kind of rethinking ways of framing kind of who we are and how we fit into the university's mission that then they can't just sort of pull this like you're trying to instigate conflict or this is going to come in between you and your advisor or your faculty mm -hmm. or you know or you're sort of um, 
creating this division too, which a lot of students see themselves as like becoming future professionals. If this is like, no, this is trying to save our future, like to be those like professors. Um, it's not it's not driving a wedge between like worker versus manager or worker versus mm -hmm. professional. Right, right. Don't be divisive. Right, right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, uh, and you know, on that broader point about um, sort of discussing these sort of more philosophical issues about the role of the university and, and what that means to the people who ultimately constitute the university as a community, right? Um, um, you know, it seems like people have been tackling a range of issues from just your basic bread and butter contract issues and working conditions and also, but also just moving towards these broader questions of, um, you know, what is, uh, you know, is, is, what is what is the meaning of an academic workforce, and what is the role of the university? Not just um, in terms of just uh, you know the higher the world of higher education, but also just in society in general. What what ultimately do we want our universities to be producing? Right, in terms of both people and and and, uh, and the labor and the and the kind of knowledge that is produced there. So, um, I, and I guess I'm just wondering how how you sort of. Um, uh, juggle those two or kind of uh, find a way to reconcile those because I, I imagine that in the whole spectrum of, of uh, graduate student workers that you're organizing maybe not everyone is so interested in sort of the broader philosophical questions but you know they do want you know healthcare and, and uh, you know um, time off for their kids so um, how do you how do you kind of bring those the, the, the big and the small So something that was really interesting about our campaign was, um, you know, like I said, we have this these really diverse range in terms of how people are being compensated. And so funnily enough, that kind of matched up. So the, the workers that were being paid relatively better were often in the departments that formed our core group of organizers. Mm -hmm. So kind of the usual suspects like social, you know, sociology, history. Um, but, you know, so Polytech, the engineering school that NYU recently acquired, where they were being paid $10, $11 an hour um, doing incredibly high-tech engineering work that should normally be paid like $40 an hour, right, on the private market. Um, even though they maybe a lot of those students weren't necessarily ideologically committed to the idea of a union, it was actually very easy to sell them because we just said, you know, did you, did you know that over at the NYU Washington Square campus, people are being paid... $15 an hour for the work that's it's, uh, for the kind of similar work to your that you're doing and uh, you know it's pretty easy to get people to sign up for a strike vote or something like that um, the material interest kind of lined up yes. <laughs> quite easily um, so maybe even if they didn't get involved in organizing which you know always I think we're striving to have more stem organizers and deeper roots in those kind of departments um, I think the material conditions, you know, argument often worked enough for a lot of people to be convinced. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I would say I also haven't found, like, a huge, um, if, if I'm getting your question right, uh, there's, I haven't found there's a huge conflict in people's minds about um, being a part of, uh, being an academic worker and being a worker. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that seems like a natural thing to people. Like, even, you know, you're in STEM, like, which is, like, like stereotypically, like, oh, you know, they're not, like, historians. They're not all, like, mm -hmm. um, socialists or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, like, well, I mean, they're also, like, very logical people, right? So, like, <laughs> <laughs> so they can, like, whatever, just like anyone else. Like, like most, most grad workers I talk to are, like, yeah, I fill out my W-2 and it says employee ID number and I put in my employee's <laughs> name there and it's Columbia. Like, it's, like, not really that, that uh, confusing to people. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I think I, mean, I think we that there's probably sort of a, maybe in the ether and in the way we talk about the university, it's sort of the received wisdom that uh, academics don't think of themselves as workers, right? But I'm sure if we talk to people about their everyday lives and how they're going, they would definitely see themselves as such. Yeah. One of the ways that we connect the everyday issues that people are familiar with, um, Tina was listing a lot of them, uh, that folks think about union contracts as the vehicle to solve with the bigger questions about the state of the university and contingent labor is by giving people hope that the things that they did not think were possible are possible. When we win six-year funding and no one thought that the university would ever guarantee that, the next thing seems a little bit more likely. Mm -hmm. And so it is like a series of intermediate victories as we win more and more and push more and more that actually gets people up to the scale that we really want to work on. Kind of following on that point, I think like one of the ways that um, at least I've been trying to kind of think about organizing too is that like the union is not the same thing as the bargaining unit. So like we can we can we can already act as a union, but we can also act as more than a union. I mean, we can advocate on behalf of lots of different people involved behalf of, on behalf of graduate students already, um, but you know, adjuncts um, and all kind of workers in higher education and have solidarity with other labor unions. I mean, and this is all something that, that I think the kind of the whole mission of the university, of the, of the union can be. Um, and then kind of dealing, I mean, it's sort of freeing in some way, you know, without being recognized or being kind of official that like, that we can sort of be whoever we want. And, um, and then once, once it sort of, we come to the, get to the table and hopefully hash out a contract, that will be for kind of more specific sectors. But I think right now it's, um, it's, it's good to kind of keep a really broad picture in mind and, and get as many people involved as possible in that way. Well, it's interesting that you talk about the sort of flexibility that you're sort of inadvertently afforded by the fact that you lack formal recognition because, I mean, if we're looking at what we're looking at in the, uh, what we're observing in the broader labor movement, right, you actually see forms of labor organizing that are moving away from, like, the formal, mm -hmm. you know, NLRB model union, and some people just <laughs> try, you know, seeking to move away from the entire NLRB apparatus altogether. Um, with like, you know, we see the blossoming of worker centers and other mm -hmm. types of organizing. And I was just wondering, you know, um, to the extent that you are drawing from these other movements, um, is that, uh, are there models of, of newer labor organizing that you're drawing from and maybe seeing why perhaps, you know, it's folks fixating, you know, strictly on the NLRB process is not always the, you know, the, the best use of your resources when you're talking about some of the immediate organizing issues you're coming across. I mean, I, I don't I actually don't know if there's that much graduate. I, is there? Is there? I don't even know if there's a lot of graduate organizing that that is actually you know not looking for a formal union at all, but just choosing rather to sort of be an outside advocator of sorts and kind of work that way. But I think there's some of it. I also think that across our campaigns, what we've recognized is that like basing our conversations on relationships is what's integral to actually getting people to understand what's at stake here and what's going on and how we can change it, right? And I think that actually that's one of the benefits of our um, negotiations with the new school um, is just like any time that you can make a human connection with people, it drives through a lot of the um, a lot of the sticky stuff, a lot of the ideology, but also a lot of the um, sort of presumed ignorance and and that sort of fog that allows them to say, actually, you're not workers. You know, so when when you actually go to someone and say, look, 
these are my conditions. I am so lucky to be doing what I'm doing, but it's not paying my rent what you're paying me to do it, right? So like that kind of cuts through that. And I think those are necessary. So like even in the formal models that we're chasing, it's important for us to move outside of those lines. Well, I, I will say at Yale, we were incredibly inspired by NYU. And um, that was a big spark to the, to the latest phase of our organizing. Uh, to think that we could, you know, get the university to the table without the NLRB, and we want that process too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say that new models for unions are a big thing. That I, I think that that was a big aspect of our whole campaign at NYU, and um, you know, we had a lot of very serious, contested discussion within our union about. Um, <coughs> what sort of strategies we wanted to use. And I think that there was a lot, a, a big push from a lot of the membership and organizers to draw on these kind of new models and new ways of organizing and also new ways of kind of internally discussing between ourselves, like how we wanted to organize as a union and really um, trying to put the rank and file at the forefront of um, our strategy mm -hmm. and who was deciding what kind of strategies we would use. And I guess I mean more recent development would be that there is a reform caucus sort of right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. That I mean that whole the process of having a contested election, the process of um, you know having the trying to right as an act, as a reform caucus put the rank and file more at the forefront of deciding our strategies. I think we were really drawing on these kind of uh, strategies used by worker centers and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it kind of related to that, um, you know, graduate students, I think, are, are sort of uh, in an interesting position in terms of the overall university kind of labor structure and in, in the sense that you are um, connected to the student body, but you're also connected to the faculty as well, and you have sort of a stake in, in all of those um, arenas. Um, does this uh, provide you with, I guess, special um, advantages in terms of uh, you know, I guess how you organize it and the types of groups that you're able to sort of gel with and, and reach out to, um, being sort of uh, you're you're not you know you're not quite the professoriate and, and you're also sort of um, you know maybe in a um, you're as laborers you're sort of uh, in a different position from say you know undergrads and other students. But uh, you know how do you how do you feel about that and how do you I guess uh, you know make, turn that into an instrument for organizing. <coughs> I mean, I think trying to stress that, like, we are sort of, we have the same goals and the same endpoint in mind, and, like, um, that that actually, like, we have the right priorities and the, and the administration doesn't um, kind of undercuts the, the opposition that the administration often wants to create between us. But And then also emphasizing, I mean, this is something that I've gotten just in talking to some faculty, you know, like, oh, well, but, like, I really, you know, I, I think this is an apprenticeship, and I... Um, you know, I don't want the capitalist um, relationship sort of entering into <coughs> this apprenticeship. And it's like, well, but the capitalism is already here. I think this is the medieval kind of <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I personally think it's, it's um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a bit too nostalgic. And I think it's, um, there's an extent to which, yes, um, like that model is inspiring, um, and, but I think is, is not... It doesn't speak to the reality, um, and and uh, right, and if and if the attempts to try to like preserve, especially at a place like Harvard, like try to preserve this sort of 
um, professional aristocracy or whatever and sort of not look up from this totally enclosed world, like, you know, when we do look up, the, the educational system will be gone. We won't have anything to sort of preserve. So, like, I, I think trying to make the point that, like, this is already um, part of what's happening and, and we are part of it. And if we don't sort of try to build solidarity across this movement, like, we won't have anything left. Um, I mean, so I think that takes some talking to faculty, but I think, I mean, I'm hopeful that a lot of them will be persuaded. And undergraduates, have, have they been generally receptive? I mean, you were talking about the Crimson before, and I don't know what the, yeah. sort of the undergraduate response has been like at uh, your... Kind of amazing, I mean. <laughs> um, so I was gonna say, like, about faculty, like, similarly, they've been generally, like, we've asked them to be neutral. They've been, like, supportive, um, supportively neutral, neutrally supportive, um, for the most part, because I think they see, like, you know, the, the thing I hear from a lot of faculty is like nothing gets done at Columbia, but you guys are getting stuff done. So they kind of like, I don't know, that built trust in a way that administration was maybe not building trust with faculty. Um, I think when I came to Columbia, I had expected it to be a lot more of an activist place than it was. Um, and then I realized that I was just not looking in the right place. All the undergrads were doing all the cool activist organizing yeah. stuff on campus. And then I think we've just been really lucky that they've like, been willing to also support us and like to let way. us come. Yeah, to let us hang out, teach us. But you've, I think, done more with undergrad uh, outreach than me. I mean, that was my experience again when I got involved with with Meta and the in local twenty one ten at Barnard, and then with faculty house workers from Unite Here. Um, it was the undergrads who were really organizing in solidarity, and then you know, I, I sort of started to build a contingent of grad students who would come to events and kind of look awkward in the back and um, God bless them all. But <laughs> now, you know, because we're organizing around our own interests um, and people are starting to think about these things broadly as related to the conditions of other workers on campus and their futures in academia, um, I think we've started to spur more activism on campus. We're making Columbia a more activist place. And I don't think that it's just the union doing that outward. It's, it's coming from both directions. We're all kind of inspiring each other. And that's a really beautiful thing because we're doing it both as peers, as students, and we're, we're doing it as workers as well. Um, and, you know, we have much more robust civil rights as, as students than we do as workers, if this were any kind of workplace, other workplace, we wouldn't be able to do the organizing the way we're doing it, which is mostly by email, <laughs> for example. Or, you know, like we, we wouldn't be able to have these open conversations in workplaces, essentially. Um, and I know that experience firsthand, um, and I'm sure that like anybody who's worked a job outside of, you know, this these sort of jobs we work in these academic workplaces knows that there's a different kind of environment. I mean, this is part of the reason why we're here and part of the reason why we want to be in this space. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think a piece of this is like telling the truth about the work we do and in the space we're doing it and not saying that it is just like these other forms of work. Um, but it's also about thinking about how we can use the civil rights we have in the labor movement more broadly, I mean, there is a, a union on campus that we're joining, a local that we're joining, Local 2110. They represent a huge number of workers who are, are fought, you know, tooth and nail by the administration every time they go into contract negotiations. I mean, at Barnard, a women's college, 
they tried to cut maternity leave. Like, that is stupid, first of all. I mean, that is just, like, stupid. But it's also just, you know, it, it sort of gives the lie to, to what the, the reputation that these colleges, that the university is trying to uphold. Um, and, like, we, being a part of this local, will be making it more stronger and more robust and bigger. And, and I think that that's why we're organizing, you know, for NLRB recognition to be officially a part of the UAW. And so when you, uh, you know, if when you affiliate with the UAW formally, then you will break with the local that you're... No, Local 2110 is a part is of the UAW. UAW. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, affiliation is another one of these alphabet soup, is I think <laughs> yeah. confusing the people who are trying to follow this from the outside. I mean, um, uh, and just um, in terms of just how you situate yourself with respect to all these other different sectors of labor at the university, I mean, I... Um, do you find that uh, private universities are especially maybe have are sort of a different organizing landscape? Because I, I mean, being um, being a member of like one of the, the big the big ass union at CUNY, right, where we had like staff and faculty all together, adjuncts, everybody lumped in together, which had challenges of its own, right? Because it became this huge sprawling thing that was like a many-headed hydra when contract <laughs> talks. But um, you know, uh, wh- how how is that? I guess. Um, when we're talking about how, how we want to organize individual sectors versus seeking solidarity in kind of a big tent kind of structure. Um, have you been able, or maybe you're, maybe that's for, a, you know, a bridge that people have yet to cross, but I mean, like, how, how do you uh, figure that out? Because uh, I understand that, I mean, I don't know if the legalities around, you know, LRB crosses a private universe, on private campuses is different from uh, public universities, but if you look at this as a state of, of a campus unionism, it's probably at um, private universities are in a different place than most public campuses. Uh, I think one thing that we have in private universities, maybe more than public universities, is um, (coughs) more of a concern maybe with public image um, because the universities themselves see themselves more, even more so as a brand um, and you know, bad press as as something affecting their basic income of, you know, students wanting to come to the university or not, that perhaps public, you know, I think this probably the same thing happens with public universities, but it's more pronounced in um, private universities. Uh, I mean, yeah, I think, you know, NYU is kind of the vanguard, right, of um, private university corporate practices in the world. And, um, it's a missionary. Yeah, it's basically, right, it is. It's like the, the forefront, the leader of uh, how universities are learning to adopt a corporate structure. Um, right? I mean, there was a, an article recently that they had some line about how NYU is like a downtown Manhattan real estate company with a very promising academic wing. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, and I think I think Can we, we get a T-shirt. <laughs> so I, I think I think we tried to use that a lot. We saw that media was a, a kind of soft point for us, maybe even more so than for other workers. And um, right at the same time, it's kind of like NYU has no shame. So where do you shame them? But uh, I think we we did try to use that to our advantage and make them feel like that they were getting even more of a bad reputation, right? That they're not only exploiting workers in NYU Shanghai, NYU Abu Dhabi, but also even in their, you know, core campus, uh, there's worker exploitation. So I, I think we tried to sell that narrative, and um, that was that worked for us. I'm not sure if this gets to your question, but it's something that your question sort of prompted. 
Um, I think we have a lot of potential no matter whether or not we affiliate um, across universities, especially in the Northeast. I mean, there's a lot of power here, right? And if the universities, if the private universities are scared of what can happen on their campuses and amongst their students, how much more threatening would it be if private university organizing graduate students organized across our campuses in one way or another? I mean, all we really need to do is have, you know, a couple demonstrations of cross-campus solidarity. That's pretty, fr like, fierce and frightening to them. So I just, I mean, I'm totally galvanized by what's happening from that perspective, whether or not we're affiliated, you know, whether or not the UAW and SEIU and all of these other unions actually, like, I mean, I can see this being remarkable. I mean, UConn has recently joined the UAW as well, and that's a public school. Um, they ran the shortest, I'm going to get this wrong, Tiffany, I'm sorry. The <laughs> Ten weeks, right? Okay, you do it. No. 63 days. 63 days. Everybody signed a card, and everybody was on board, and it was, like, in the water or something. Um, and, and so UConn actually recognized them um, pretty quickly, um, but then sort of did, like, a 180 and is now fighting them pretty hard in, in contract negotiations. Um, so I think, like, it's, it's difficult to compare unions that have been established for a while in the public sector but, like, this is another thing that we can sort of watch that's parallel to us and that we're, like, in communication with folks at UConn that our organizers are working with them as well. Um, so that's, like, one way of, of thinking about that and looking at that comparison as we go forward. Um, but I am from the Midwest, so I have to call the Northeast navel-gazing thing um, and say, like, I have friends at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and Madison who have been in the streets for a really long time, um, and right to work is coming for everybody, like everyone here, even New York, even New York. Um, and so I think that the, the difference between, or what I think of as the main difference nationally between this, this sort of movement among private university grad workers and those in public sec the public sector is that we have a little bit more protection of our rights right now because right to work is, is starting with public sector workers, right? And it's going after the universities. It's going after, you know, many public sector workers, but also, like, the, the grad workers there. So... Um, I see it as a way of also bolstering, um, again, unions across both sectors and outside of the university. I will just say something very quickly on affiliation and uh, other uh, alliances and how to do that work. It takes a lot to get to know each other. I mean, it is talking to your registrar about how their workday looks. It is talking to the people who clean your classroom about how their workday looks. And it is finding forums where all different types of workers can interact. And I think that is one of the things that the photo petition did for us was when we were taking our photos with other workers on campus, we got to talk to them and get to know them. And now we see each other around campus and we actually know who we are. We start to think of ourselves as having shared interests. And the same thing with you know the kind of community organizing that goes on in the city. When we go out to events about jobs in New Haven as graduate students, we meet people who live in parts of the city that we don't necessarily. And so I think it is a lot of work, but that is how you build real relationships. Mm -hmm.
And that was Rebecca Wind of NYU, Andrea Crow and Lindsay Dayton of Columbia University, Tina Groger of Harvard, Ellie Nadu of the New School for Social Research, and Kelly Goodman of Yale, talking about graduate worker organizing. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, where we, or this week, I talk about the piece that we read recently that we wish we'd written but did not. So uh, my pick for the week is The Cost of an Adjunct by Laura McKenna. It appears in The Atlantic Online. This is actually kind of a good compliment to the discussion on graduate worker organizing because um, having been a graduate uh, instructor before myself, I've always felt like um, adjuncts actually probably had it a little bit worse in some ways. That may, of course, vary by institutions, but I mean, when you think about it, uh, graduate students are there temporarily. There's sort of a set time frame for the time that they're going to be appointed as instructors, and uh, generally people go into it thinking that it's sort of a stepping stone on the path to some higher tier of their educational uh, ladder. But for a lot of adjuncts, it ends up becoming a dead-end job. Um, And what makes it worse is that a lot of people kind of assume that, uh, you know, anyone who's speaking at a lectern in a lecture hall has got to, you know, have a, be making a pretty decent living, but that's obviously not the case. And um, the piece actually takes an interesting look at what adjunct labor means for the student experience, uh, which is a different perspective than the one we're commonly used to hearing about, which is generally coming from uh, adjunct professors themselves who express their frustration about the terrible working conditions, um, being on public benefits, uh, struggling to make ends meet, and being overworked and exhausted all the time. So um, that's certainly a huge component of that, and I'm glad people are out there speaking out about it, but um, it's also important to recognize that this is having a profound impact on the way higher education is experienced by the people who should be at the center of it, which are students. She's basically telling us that, you know, people who can't really make ends meet without juggling multiple jobs and, you know, often uh, doing sort of a half-assed version of all of them together, uh, struggling to cobble together a living wage, they can't really provide the support or the guidance that students generally look to their instructors for. Students who may just be starting out their careers and who may be in a precarious position themselves in terms of pursuing their uh, higher educational goals. And she paints a pretty grim picture um, based on the research that The Atlantic has done trying to sort of quantify the overall costs uh, for the student experience. She says, adjuncts readily admit that they cannot support students outside of a classroom, such as when students need extra help understanding an assignment, general college advisement, or a letter of recommendation for a graduate program. And even if they had time to provide these services, many colleges don't provide their adjuncts with office space, so they have to meet with their pupils in coffee shops or at library desks. 
Um, besides that, uh, adjuncts often report that they simply cannot answer the common questions from the students about the requirements for the major course sequencing or related classes at a college because they don't have this information. Adjunct professors are often not really considered really part of the community of faculty at a campus, and therefore they're kind of shut out of the discussions that are more programmatic, um, that are more about you know what the department has planned and the overall sort of arc of an undergraduate experience that that full-time faculty um, have the benefit of being able to shape. So uh, same goes with letters of recommendation. I mean, you know, how are you supposed to write a letter of recommendation if you're not paid for the time and you don't really have a sense of what your student is doing on campus other than, you know, just sitting in your class for an hour a week at a campus that you're only at for an hour or two a week? But even more troubling is the problem that she sort of touches upon um, in giving the overall picture of the student experience, which is that uh, students tend to be pretty oblivious about what their professors are going through. And I think that distance is both a product of and a factor in the growing disconnect between the labor that helps produce and reproduce knowledge on a college campus and the students who are increasingly seen as mere consumers of that knowledge and not as participants in their educational experience or in shapers of the educational system. And ironically, it's uh, the administrations that are often pressuring adjuncts to contribute more and more of their labor for free, kind of exploiting their goodwill and trying to sort of guilt them into thinking that because they are teaching about what they love and that they're passionate about their subject matter, that they should be able to give even more than what they are paid for. Of course, you can only squeeze so much blood from the stone. And frankly, no one benefits when uh, administrations squeeze adjuncts by encouraging them to selflessly uh, perform a labor of love for unlivable wages. Um, That whole process not only devalues and commodifies the very work that they're supposed to be uplifting, but it's also, um, you know, just plain exploiting people. And when that's going on on college campuses, it cannot contribute to a very conducive atmosphere, uh, academic or otherwise. And um, exploiting people's dedication to their profession encourages them for a while to cling to the belief that it will pay off in the end. But sadly, more and more adjuncts are discovering that uh, it isn't. And unless they can get organized, hopefully with the help of graduate student workers, um, then administrations will forever continue to be able to exploit both students and adjuncts. Because after all, it is the students who pay for their education, for better or worse. And that's all for this episode of Belabored. You can tweet at us at hashtag belabored. You can reach us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Let us know if you have any horror stories about uh, working as an adjunct professor or if you have any success stories about a successful unionizing effort at your college campus. You want to hear about it. Thanks for listening. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hate when the fact, hell no, we can't go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag Belaboured.